This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are Heather Moorfield-Lang and Gina Seymour. Heather is the author of School Library Makerspaces in Action, and Gina is the author of Makers with a Cause. So I've talked a lot on the show about makerspaces in public libraries, but not too much about school makerspaces. So I am excited to welcome a couple of guests today to talk more about that. Welcome to Heather and Gina. Thank you. Hi. So uh, I want to get started and kind of go further back than where we're going to get to and just find out first from each of you um, how you made your way to libraries in the first place and then from there to makerspaces. For libraries, that goes really far back. My um, original area was theater education. And so um, I actually have a theater and arts education, and my doctorate is actually in education with a focus in arts education. Um, So interestingly, that works really well with the makerspaces if I quickly jump forward. Um, So when I was looking at going into a master's program, I looked at master's of theater arts and theater education. And I had already been a high school library assistant. I had worked in libraries in the past. I had volunteered in libraries. I also worked in libraries when I was a high school a high school student and a college student. That was my um, internship, my uh, student assistantship when I was in college. And I enjoyed working in libraries as well. So I thought that might be a really good way to go. And so I started applying for programs. And I did this a lot throughout my career. I would apply and see kind of what panned out. And um, the theater programs weren't really, they didn't have any openings, but the the library programs did. So theater didn't work out, but library did. And so that's really how I got involved in librarianship. It was an area that I always enjoyed. Um, I started, you know, my parents took me to libraries. I always enjoyed libraries. Libraries had always been a big part of my life, and they continue to be so now. Uh, When it comes to makerspaces, on the other hand, makerspaces... Because I have my doctorate, I teach library science, I'm highly pragmatic on the fact that I need tenure and I have to publish and I have to teach and I have to have service and I have to do research and all this type of stuff. So about five years ago, makerspaces, especially in libraries and particularly in school libraries, were really coming much more to the forefront. It was becoming very apparent that there wasn't a lot of empirical research in the area. To be quite honest, there still really isn't in the area of school libraries. Um, And so I was driving because that's where I get my best ideas. And while I was driving, I started thinking about um, makerspaces and school libraries. And that's why I went into that area because I do a lot with technology, technology and education, technologies and libraries. So I started looking at it from the point of technologies in makerspaces and libraries. And then it moved into the spaces and now it's moved into so many different areas. My most recent piece is LGBTQIA makers and safe spaces and school libraries. And so I've moved from a much more wide vantage point or a wide view of maker spaces in school libraries and libraries in general. When I first started, I had to do school, public, and academic libraries because there just weren't enough school libraries to talk to. 
And then it moved into many different areas. I've done training and policies and all different types of stuff. Wherever I feel there's a gap in the research is where I look for more areas. And and now I see a lot of folks who are doing work in curricula and and professional development and assessment. Assessment's very popular right now. And so that's kind of how um, I got involved with Makerspaces and also kind of see how it is continuing now a good five, six years later. So yes, one story is much, much longer than the other one. The Makerspace story is pretty, pretty short. Pragmatic, I needed stuff to write about and I'm always looking for new trends and things to write about and that that's how that got started for me. Great, how, how about you, Gina? Well, for libraries, I've pretty much lived in libraries all my life. My grandmother worked in a public library and didn't drive. So two nights a week, uh, we had to drive her home. And uh, so a minimum of two nights, two days a week, we uh, we would all pile into the car and uh, pick up grandma. And uh, we'd get our books and exchange them, etc. Um, my first job um, was a page in a public library as well. And then I went on to be a library assistant in a medical library. Um, so I, I kind of continued with libraries, um, you know, throughout my life and uh, decided to, you know, get my master's in library science as well. Um, so I've worked in a variety of different libraries, uh, medical libraries, obviously, public libraries, and now um, school library. And uh, I do enjoy working with, with children. And um, as far as the makerspace uh, idea, I've also, same as libraries, I've always been a maker, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, my grandmother taught me how to crochet or or when the kids got a little bit older, I made all of their cakes. I'm, I'm one of these cake peoples that, you know, if you give me a theme, I will make you a three-tiered cake. And, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in a sense, I've always been a maker. And, and that translated to um, working with children as well. So um, it was just natural progression to dedicate a space in the library for what we were already doing. Um, so that was wonderful. And then a few years back, um, we not only had the dedicated maker space, we carved out a little section just for service um, uh, projects because you know I found that the kids were um, very interested in creating for others. They, you know, they they enjoy making stuff for themselves or making stuff just to tinker. But the idea of making for a purpose and making for, um, you know, a cause uh, seemed to interest them uh, quite a bit. So we carved out a little uh, area called Maker Care and um, we, you know, um, kind of mix our different makings. You know, in any given day we're doing something different, which is pretty much what a makerspace should be. It, it should be, you know, um, run by the kids and you know, what they really um, desire doing. Okay. Um, and would you be willing to make a cake and mail it down to Atlanta for me? Or <laughs> <laughs> And I'm in Greensboro in North cakes. Carolina. So send me a cake. <laughs> we all want cakes now. Everybody I'm particularly eat. fond of Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, that would be fun, actually. I want a, I want a TARDIS-themed cake. Blue frosting. Uh, that, actually, that would be easy. Cool. 
Yeah, that's just a rectangle. Maybe. So that's a rectangle. <laughs> it's like a phone box. You got you got to get more. You got to get more creative there into the screwdriver. And... Yeah, truly, screwdriver. I want a Dalek. There we go. Um, so in a in a kind of and and Gina, we'll talk a little bit more when we're getting into more uh, detail about your book about service based projects, but. I, Backing up into a broader area, how do you see makerspaces contributing to learning objectives in schools? Like when a teacher or a parent or an administrator comes and says, why are we doing this? What's the justification for having this in schools? Well, makerspaces help a great deal for, well, I mean, a myriad of reasons. One of the major reasons is libraries are no longer your place where you are absorbing information. They are now a location where you can create and make information. So there's that. Libraries, of course, are an ever-changing location. So we are meeting the needs of our communities. Um, Makerspaces became very popular in our academic and public libraries. And so it is only natural that they should also be in our school libraries to match what is happening in our our makerspaces and our libraries across the country. Um, But also it works really well as a different type of learning and a different type of assessment and a different type of output for our students and our patrons in our libraries so that it's not just the same type of output and work while we collaborate with our peer educators. It's another way to look at a project or an outcome. And it's also just a place for our students to make and create and build and do and be and be creative and tinker and problem solve and explore. And to look at the library and the space and what they're doing there in a whole new way. And so, I mean, that that's a, there's even more answers to that, but that's kind of summing that up in a, in a reasonably quick way so that I can also turn it over to Gina so that she can add to that answer. Yeah, um, uh, totally. The kids will come in and like you say, problem solve, you know, uh, they're, you know, there's something wrong with their backpack or, you know, something's falling apart and they head for the duct tape or the glue or, you know, their, their cell phone case cracked or, you know, um, so there's a, there's a lot of practical problem solving on a daily basis, you know, um, so, so that's one interesting aspect of the, um, of the makerspace. As far as educational outcomes, um, I find that I have a lot of classes come in for a variety of reasons um, because they, it's, it's a visual, tactile way of learning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's one thing to sit in front of a PowerPoint as, you know, a classroom teacher, you know, imparts the information to them, but then it's another when they, you know, have that hands-on experience and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more tangible. So, um, you know, we, we do a lot with, um, physics class, obviously, and, you know, even, um, you know, um, just a variety of different classes. We also use it for English language learners um, because they don't always get the additional, um, you know, coursework, course content in their, um, you know, their regular schedule. So they can be exposed to physics and to other uh, course content that they wouldn't typically get. So that that's another interesting way. And plus, like making is its own language, so it really transcends. Um, you know, our non-English proficient students as well. So it, it, there's really a great need for makerspace or makerspace activities in um, schools across the country. 
Yeah, and, and as you said, it kind of um, it, it, it encourages collaboration because you'll have okay. um, you'll you'll have the media specialists or the school librarians working with the teachers, or maybe even working mm-hmm. with the clubs because like a lot of schools have robotics clubs and things like that, so they'll want to work with the, the makerspace as well. So it really encourages that, I think, in the schools as well. A lot of people think of makerspaces and they're like, oh, the 3D printers and the big expensive mm. technology, but you can do things on low budgets as well. Do you guys have oh, yeah. suggestions for that? Some of it, like Gina was talking about, there's things that are not technology-based that are maker projects as well. But do you all have other ideas of schools that are kind of crunched for budget, how they can get makerspaces started? I actually have an entire presentation on uh, can I have a makerspace for under 100, please? Uh, kind of a takeoff for from Jeopardy! where I talk about green screens, which is technology, but still pretty cheap. Um, I talk about all the different things you can do with cardboard and duct tape. Um, I talk about all the different tools that are already available online, which goes back a lot to my technology tools that I do with the American Association of School Librarians of like best websites and best apps and technology integration where you can build websites online uh, or um, build makerspaces online and have your own um, kind of online digital maker space. So digital storytelling, music recording, website creation, coding, a lot of these things don't cost anything uh, or a very you know, minimal fee. Uh, and so there's so many different things that you can do um, at a very low budget. One of my favorite activities that I've seen in multiple schools is what they call Genius Hour. And Genius Hour can go a multitude of ways. And I'm sure if anyone's listening to this, they're like, that's not how I use Genius Hour. That's fine. It's up to you, however you like to use it. But Genius Hour is where uh, students can come together to just prototype, come up with ideas, think things out. And so I've seen students create everything from helmets that would go with the book Wonder to um, a group of students who created a a, um, prototype for uh, sectioning out their Legos. And then they were going to write Publix, the grocery store, to see if they could get an old conveyor belt from them to uh, be able to use the conveyor belt to actually make their prototype into reality. And I have a picture of the cardboard version that worked. It was it worked. It spun. How they were going to separate them out into colors, I still had a few questions. Uh, I had a group of students who built their own reading castle out of cardboard. The trellis was too big. It kept falling on people, so they had to make a smaller trellis, which is problem-solving. Uh, if it keeps falling on people and it's hitting people in the head, why do we make it smaller or we need to make it smaller? Um, you know, so if something doesn't work and that then we get to the embracing of failure. If something does not work, then we try it again. It's not a situation of, oh, we failed, we give up. No, this didn't work out this time. I had a group of high school students who were building a quadcopter drone out of found parts. And it wasn't working yet, but they were like, that's okay. We'll make, we'll, we'll get it working. And so I've seen a lot of both the teachers and librarians themselves figuring things out on a budget, getting donations, um, asking for grants, doing things on the cheap. Uh, a lot of folks, I recommend starting low tech long before you move into anything more high tech. And while 3D printers are great, they're not my favorite thing to recommend because they kind of messy. They're a little slow. I like them. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're pretty snazzy. But oh, very few libraries have I been like, you know what you need? You need a 3D printer. It reminds me a lot of when I used to write about one-to-one devices. Folks would come up to me going, what do I need to buy? 
and I don't have a list of this is what you need to buy. It's what are the needs of the community? What would best serve them and what they're working on or for? And then from there, we might can discuss what you might want to get supply wise. So I want to um, come back to something that you guys have sort of brought up a little bit. Gina brought it up even a little more explicitly, but about the students playing a role in how the mm-hmm. makerspace is run. Can you guys talk about that a little bit of how you not completely turn it over to the students, obviously, but just how you give them some major input and into, into how it's run and how into what gets done there? Sure. Well, we're talking about school library makerspaces, of course, but I've also interviewed folks in academic and this particularly public library makerspace or the folks who are implementing them. Every successful makerspace, the librarians and those who, the directors, those who have implemented these spaces, those who are getting the feedback early into the process of their patrons or their students of what they want and what they want to see in their makerspace. What is the ideal makerspace? Because this isn't Heather's makerspace. This isn't Gina's makerspace. And it may not even be a space. This may be a corner. These may be activities. This might be a cart that you're taking down the hallway. I don't know. It could be whatever you want it to be. They don't, they're not always designated spaces. But, you know, what would you like out of your maker time or space or location, whatever. Um, but if you don't have the student input of what they might be interested in doing, then it's what we think and what I think a student wants could be off the mark. I might think they want coding and Spiros and this, that, and the other while they're interested in fixing their backpacks, as Gina talked about, and making service um, materials for elder care and dog toys for local shelters. I don't know, and I won't know unless I ask. And it's their space. We need to include them. And this is for public libraries, too. They've been successful when they try things out, test things out, um, take either observational data, environmental scan, just check out and see what works and get feedback and then implement. And don't be afraid to change as the years go by and as new things come out and new ideas come out. And again, be willing to change with what your your patrons, your clients, your customers, your students want, however you like to call them. That's my two cents on that. And that also goes with research. That's Everybody I speak to, I have entire papers now, articles now about intentional integration, community integration of makerspaces, you know, intentional use of your community, making sure that they are involved. I, I have to agree with Heather on that. When I first started out, um, I had a series of whiteboards uh, in the library and um, they, you know, and I'd write down, you know, what do you want to do? What supplies do you think we need? You know, and, and it was just different whiteboards for different questions. And anyone could walk up and, and write down, um, you know, their thoughts. So early on, um, there were, you know, there, there was student voice. And the student voice has continued to this day. Um, you know, I'll bring ideas to the table and say, hey, this is going on. You know, uh, I think this would be a great idea to celebrate this. Um, And very often I will have a student come up to me and say, I would like to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Do we have the supplies? Can you buy this for me? You know, or whatever. Um, So it's a mix of, of, you know, um, it's a nice balance. You know, I I get to introduce something that they might not be familiar with. 
Um, and they also get to introduce something to me that I might not be familiar with or I hadn't thought of. So I think it's imperative um, that you have student voice. Um, otherwise, I don't, I don't think the makerspace is going to be as successful. I, I, I don't think it can be. Just to add to the end of what Gina was saying, yeah, we, we think, you know, we want to purchase or buy or bring in items for our students. And then we find out that zines, for example, that were very popular in the 60s have made a complete resurgence. Our students want to create podcasts. They want to create videos. They want to create music videos and music recordings. We may or may not have known that. And if you don't ask them, how will you ever know? This also harkens back. Back when, when I um, stopped doing Accelerated Reader and sent up a hue and a cry and a prayer in my library of thanks that I no longer had to do Accelerated Reader, I was starting to, even before that, I was asking my students, what books do you want in the library? And it's the exact same concept. It's just for makerspaces. What do you, it's your library. It's not for me. I'm not reading these 8,000, 10,000 books. I, I mean, I'm reading some, but I mean, it's, you know, what, what do you want? They're here for you. They're not here for me. Heather, your book is called School Library Makerspaces in Action, and uh, yours is a collection. Actually, both of yours are basically collections of kind of stories, collections of projects and things. So, Heather, uh, you've broken up your book kind of into age groups, and then there's a section at the end about kind of collaborations with public libraries. Do you have any we'll, – we'll let Gina talk about her own chapter, but um, can you talk about a couple of the projects that you had people write about in your book? A couple of – I know, I know they're all standouts, but if you want to pick out a couple to talk about. <laughs> Jeez, let me – they're going to be like, why didn't you talk about mine? So They're all great. Yes, they're all awesome, and I love them all. And and I, I – well, I knew pretty much everyone – but I did send out a call for proposals for this book. Right. Um, I This is not my first book. I had actually co-authored a couple of pieces for the American Library Association editions a few years ago with two of my peers at Virginia Tech, Carolyn Meyer and Rebecca Miller. We wrote two pieces on one-to-one -one devices in academic libraries and then in school libraries. So I I had gone through the process of doing edited books and editions and things along those lines. I've also done some library technology reports for ALA, which, to be quite honest, is the exact same process, just a shorter amount of words. And so when ABC Clio, I had actually presented on school library makerspaces, and I call it the view from here. And I had presented on it a couple of times at ALA and it was, I guess, a pretty popular presentation. And that's when ABC Clio, the year before last, contacted me about um, publishing with them. And I said, I would be very interested in writing a book with you as long as I can bring in other people. Because my entire presentation and all of my work is not based on any makerspace that I have. I teach in a school of library and information studies currently at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Up until this past summer, I was working at the University of South Carolina. I don't have a makerspace. I teach 100% online. It's really difficult for me to go, okay, everybody, let's all pull out our spheros at our various and sundry locations from Maine to California, and we're all going to work on coding our spheros or working with our Arduino. We're going to make 3D printing. 
I could do it. Um, I teach a technology integration class and makerspaces are part of it, but I don't meet with a group of students in makerspaces. But I study makerspaces, I visit makerspaces, I interview folks who direct and build in makerspaces, librarians who work in makerspaces, their students, their patrons, all of their stories is what build my research. And it's not, I didn't feel it was fair for me to put together a book that didn't include their voices, which is the reason why I wanted to create a book based on their chapters and their stories. And so I called, I, I sent out a call for proposal uh, proposals. I asked folks specifically, um, you know, I had some definite friends who I knew I wanted to include, and I wanted to make sure that I included some folks like Ida Mae Craddock, for instance. I've known Ida Mae pretty much uh, and she wrote uh, chapter three in the middle grades called Makers Gonna Make. And um, from from my publisher vantage point, she was she she was a big favorite uh, from the readers as well. Um, I think she also had a popular title. But Ida May and I, we've known each other since I first started doing research in makerspaces. She had a makerspace fully integrated in her high school in Charlottesville, and now she's moved to a middle school in Charlottesville. And her stories were about integrating the makerspace, moving to a new school and going from a traditional school setting and putting building the new makerspace and building that culture of making again because she'd already gone through that once. And so I wanted to include stories. As you said, I broke it down from early grades, middle grades, upper grades. Um, but then I had new folks that I actually hadn't met before, like Phil Goner. Um, and he had very much a student-led makerspaces, which harkens back very much to our conversation we were just having, very much about the students, what they wanted in the makerspace, um, how they led the idea, the projects, and things like that along those lines in the makerspace. And he was very... Um, student heavy, making sure that the students were aware of their pictures. When the book came out, he actually had Twitter pics and selfies with the book with his students. And the students showed the book and their pictures in um, and on social media. So I really enjoyed that. Um, another person that I've worked with at length is Yaron DeBurr, and he is in the Netherlands. He is with a public library or a public library system, and he's one of the directors of the Frisk Lab in the Netherlands, and they are a mobile makerspace, and they do a lot of partnerships with academic libraries, but also school libraries. And he does a lot with sustainable making and making projects across all across the Netherlands. They decided that having just the makerspace in their public library there wasn't you know sufficient so they take their maker lab on the road and they're actually a fab lab and the fab lab actually it's like having a rock star roadie uh situation going all across you know europe and they've actually gone to multiple countries uh, when they first got started they had a uh, eight country, 12 stop tour with the Frisk Lab all over Europe. I just kind of wanted to be a roadie on their tour. I just kind of want to hang out with those guys anyway, because they're just super cool. And um, they actually got to present with me. Uh, they got to talk at one of my presentations and I got to meet all of the guys who help run the Frisk Lab. Um, and so Yaren and I, we've written together a few times. He's written for one of my library technology reports in this book. Um, I hope to get to do more projects with him. Those are like three chapters. Let's be honest, there's 11 or 12 in here. So I hate to only call out three, but I also know, you know, there's there's other people. But of course, another standout chapter is Gina. And Gina talks about 
uh, inclusive making spa- maker spaces. For me, she specifically talked about working with uh, English language learners and special education students. Um, she was going to talk about the service learning stuff, but uh, she had her own book, which came out a month after mine. <laughs> I happen to think that maker spaces are beneficial for all students, but um, mostly I find uh, special education students and um, English language learners benefit, um, you know, greatly as well. And not all maker spaces, um, you know, are are geared to these populations. Very often I'll hear, you know, uh, people using makerspaces more as, you know, a gen ed um, type uh, scenario. And and I really, you know, would like to encourage a lot more use with, um, you know, special needs students, um, special education and English language uh, learners, because they, um, you know, there, there's just so much that can be done um, with these students and the benefits are, you know, are the same, you know, um, for our ELLs, they're, they're learning conversational and academic vocabulary, because while you're making, you are collaborating and you need to talk. Um, you're following directions, which um, not that I like to do test prep, but when, when, you know, you have a project that requires following step-by-step directions, it, it does mimic uh, an exam, you know, where you have to read the instructions and then, you know, follow step by step. So, you know, there are some side benefits to it as well. But more than anything, I think it's the confidence that it gives our um, our students that they they can, um, you know, it, the, self, the self-esteem and the self-confidence that's given to them that they can participate the same as anyone else. Um, I happen to love code.org because Mm -hmm. when you do the hour of code programming, there's over 30 different languages. Um, So when we do, uh, you know, an hour of code in December with our, you know, whole student population, no one is left out. So, you know, even if a student has just arrived from somewhere, they can participate in another language, and, and it's 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 very inclusive. I think it's a great idea to always have you know the entire student body feel as if they're part of the student body. You know, yes, um, there shouldn't be separate groups that do separate things, and they can't participate in the big read, or they can't participate in you know hour of code or whatever it is. So anytime there's a, a group. Um, you know, school-wide promotion, I'm always cognizant of, you know, our um, special needs groups. And as far as special education students, um, they use the makerspace just as much as anyone else. I have um, a special education teacher who, um, when she writes her IEPs um, and the transitional goals for each individual student, she does include makerspace activities on those goals um, as well. So it becomes part of a, you know, an actual, um, you know, document with the student that it is that beneficial for, you know, um, this group of uh, students um, to be using um, makerspace activities. Right, and the, and the, and the IEP is like the individual education plan for the student, which is gear, gearing the education specifically to them that how their the goals that they will do because special ed is different in that each student kind of gets their own learning plan, whereas as a general ed class, 
all 25 kids are learning the same thing so, mm-hmm. in the same way. Exactly. And, you know, there, there are certain goals like managing your time and, you, you, you know, um, you know, uh, it, different goals that need to be addressed that are so easily um, done in a maker space. Um, yeah. Plus, I have found that with special education students, that the more they participate in maker activities, the more outgoing and more um, collaborative they become, the more, uh, you know, conversational. Whereas, you know, I've had students who have been very, um, I don't want to say shy, they've outright said, I don't like talking to other people. <laughs> they think, you know, they're very insular. Mm-hmm. And, um and have gone to the point where they've actually formed their own clubs and groups within the makerspace, which I, I, I just think is so in, uh, interesting to go from freshman year where, you know, not very social to highly social. So I, I think makerspaces transform people and in a very good way. That's great, and, and and yours is yours. The stuff you talk about in your chapter is is like not not a way that the stereotypical way people think of makerspaces. So I I appreciated that kind of unique view of it as well of using it for those um, specific kind of categories of students that it's especially helpful for them. So Gina, um, your book is called Makers with a Cause, and it's about um, a, using makerspaces not just for learning possibilities, but for a more specific purpose than just education. Um, and I know you talked a little bit earlier about the maker care section of your library. Can you talk a little bit about more b- before the book, even of why you wanted to create that space in your library and uh, how the students have reacted to it? It's interesting because, um, you know, like the maker space itself, you know, we had already been making, you know, we, we you know, we, we celebrated Teen Tech Week. We, you know, we did a lot of uh, maker type activities before we actually labeled, you know, an area of the library a makerspace. So, in the same way, we used our library and our makerspace in a unique way, and that was through compassionate making. We made for others. So, if someone needed, you know, um, some work done at a local. Um, you know, Maker Expo or something, you know, we we built marble runs and wind tubes and, you know, had them donated to the, um, you know, to the activity, to the cause. Um, and the same way, you know, we, I always encourage making, you know, holiday gifts and holiday cards and, um, you know, for the students to give away to others. It, it just seemed natural. Um, we had a student, um, pass away suddenly, um, unexpectedly. And we came together in the makerspace and we made these memorial buttons just before homecoming as a way to, you know, honor the memory of, of this student. And it really solidified my thought that, you know, we are truly compassionate makers. We, we can use our making abilities and our makerspaces to help others, whether it's to a leave, um, you know, grief or to provide dog toys for the local animal shelter, you know, uh, surgical caps for, uh, local hospitals, you know, for kids, you know, who want, you know, Disney princess surgical cap as opposed to some ugly green thing. Um, it, it's, 
it's a unique way of um, just looking at others, you know, other than yourself. It, it, it's just, um, I just thought it was important. Besides, it's nice to be nice, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And can you talk about a couple of the specific projects that you mentioned in the book? I know we talked a little bit earlier about making dog toys and things like that, too. Can you talk about some of the other projects that you mentioned in the book? Sure. Um, you know, with, within the book, um, it's broken up into a bunch of different sections. So obviously animals um, play a big part. Uh, you know, we mentioned the dog toys. There's various different types of cat toys, you know, and, you know, it, you don't need to know how to sew, but some things require sewing. Um, there's uh, also, it go, runs the range from very crafty, you know, where you're just, you know, making by um, hand through um, 3D printing and how to get involved with, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the uh, Project Enable, where we use our 3D printers to create arms and limbs, um, hands for uh you know, as prosthetics for um, children, but there's also a, um, a group out there that will, um, that needs help with animals, you know, doing the same thing where um, you get paired up with, um, you know, someone in your area that needs you to do some 3D printing for them, um, for an animal in need. So uh, that kind of, was interesting. So you could do your, use your 3D printer in different ways, whether for humans or for animals as well. Um, there's a lot of different uh, help for the homeless and for the, uh, um, you know, for uh, different community-wide projects. A lot of hospital projects. I spent a lot of time um, recently in and out of hospitals. Um, so I, I got to see a lot of different projects that was, uh, you know, needed. And um, so there's a lot of different ways of helping hospitals. Um, you had mentioned earlier about connecting curriculum. The book doesn't specifically do that, but I have to say, like projects like the sleep mat for the homeless, where we use um, PLARN, which is plastic grocery bags, mm -hmm. and we crochet them into mats, uh, you know, sleep mats for the homeless. The, you know, I've used this with marine biology classes. I teach at the high school level and um, also with uh, AP environmental science. So they're learning about plastics in the ocean and, um, you know, you know, different you know, ways that it affects uh, our environment, but then also a way to show the students how to recycle that as opposed to, you know, one use, you know, throw it out in the garbage. Um, also using PLARN, there's the uh, military mats, you know, soldiers stationed abroad, you know, the same thing, you're, you're, you're PLARNing a smaller sized mat so that this way they don't have to get into their, their bunks with um, sandy feet, you know, they have you know, a little mat right in front of their, their cot. So there's a variety of different um, projects from, you know, helping out the military, um, helping out your community, um, helping out animals. Uh, I, I like to think that there's a nice wide range. And then, of course, uh, the, the last chapter is global that, uh, you know, it's a little bit harder to make globally, you know, and ship things. But there are a few ways that, as makers, we can have a global impact um, as well as, a, you know, a local impact. 
Yeah, I mean, and you work at a school library, but um, that's obviously I, I, I'm going to take some of those ideas for my public library as well. As it's, like, it's not specifically for oh sure just supporting doing schools. It's mm-hmm. a project anybody can do. Actually, it's it's really designed for public or um, school library. Um, and to tell you the truth, um, I've had like Girl Scout leaders and uh, you know troop leaders and yeah. other service club um, people have have shown an interest, as well as family and consumer science teachers, because there are some uh, a lot of sewing projects. And very often, I and you mentioned earlier in the show that we. Um, you know, uh, having a makerspace, you tend to collaborate a lot with uh, teachers in your school. And I have to say, I collaborate now even more than just doing information literacy skills. Mm-hmm. But our family and consumer science teacher, Heidi um, Stevens, she um, she and I, we, we collaborate practically weekly because we're constantly coming up with ideas. Um, the, the kids need to learn certain skills in sewing. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't always want to take their creations home. So we've done surgical caps for kids. We've done uh, cerebral palsy bibs um, uh, and donated those. We've 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 done quite a few uh, catnip toys. Um, we, we've made as well. That was fun. Uh, so we've made a lot of projects together that uh, you know uh, the, the kids are are learning and they're. Um, providing service for the community. I I just, I think it's wonderful. Um, I think it's wonderful that our school is doing this. I'm I'm looking at some of your activities. I've got a sustainable maker project that I'm looking to do with um, the Cherokee Language Immersion School coming up this semester and into the spring. And I'm looking at some of these for some of uh, the activities I'd like to do with those students. Oh, excellent. That's great, yeah, because that that really fits into the um, service mindset of libraries too. I mean, that's kind of what mm-hmm. our whole thing is serving the community. So that you're doing it. I mean, obviously, educating children is, is is serving them as well, but it's just another way of doing it in a, in a broader sense. And again, getting those kids involved and giving them a sense of um, morality isn't the right word I want to say, but values and just of helping people is good. <laughs> yeah. And, and I- I'd, I'd also like to add that when we do our service projects, we, again, do not exclude anyone. Our special education students and our English language learners are also participating. You know, special education students, they, you know, they often receive services, but they feel very, um, they, they have an increased uh, self-esteem when they see themselves as helping others as well. There's some examples in um, the book. And also for our English language learners, um, they learn about their community. Like when we were doing um, the dog toys, uh, you know, they participated and they they said to me, they're like, you mean there's a place you can go to and they'll <laughs> give you a dog? You know, and I'm like, yeah. The center, you know, I mean, you got to sign some papers and stuff. They're just not giving them out yeah, of the cardboard yeah, box. But yeah, exactly. But they'll but do it. They, they didn't know that this existed in mm-hmm. the community in which they now live. So it's also a way for them to learn about their new communities uh, as well as helping out in their community. So well, not, I, I like to be inclusive. Yes. Well, and not to get political in any way, shape or form, though I'm more than happy to. Um, but when it's a situation these days of me, 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 and what can we do for us and so egocentric, a book that is focusing on what you can do for others 
and that's so service focused, which is very much is our field. And so is education because we're always looking at what can we do for our patrons? What can we do for our students? What can our students do for other people? This is a very welcome book, which is the reason why it is doing very well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure who you're talking about with an egocentric politician. I, I'm kind of baffled what? by that. I, I don't know. I, don't, I won't drop names because I refuse <laughs> to say anything out loud. I, would, I, I don't invoke his name out loud like uh, like Voldemort. But anyway, <laughs> we know who I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about one person. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, no. It's, no, it's, no there's, a, there's a whole section of society, and it may be accentuated now, but it's always been there. And so it's, it's, so it's, it's nice to, um, like you said, just – Promote niceness and kindness exactly. and helping it's other nice people. It's nice to be nice. <laughs> it's nice to be nice. It's good to be kind. All right. Um, Heather and Gina, thank you so much for talking to me today. And again, your books are School Library Makerspaces in Action by Heather and Makers with a Cause by Gina Seymour. And they are both both by Libraries Unlimited. Um, yes, so, sir. So thank you so much for being on. If people want to follow up with you and ask you any other questions, how can they get in touch with you? Well, thanks so much for having me. It is always a pleasure, or us, yeah, thanks so much for having us. Um, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thoroughly got to, it was thor- thoroughly enjoyable to speak with you this summer as well. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, um, Twitter is probably the easiest. I am Heather Moorefield. My name's too long for all of it to be on there, so just Heather Moorefield, or Acting in the Lib. Um that's probably the easiest to get in touch with me initially, just because I can, um, you can DM me there. Uh, and then I also have a website, uh, which is tech 15 and that's, you can just spell out 15. So tech15.com. And that's also the name of my YouTube channel. So, you know, somewhere in there, you should be able to, um, get in touch with me. Um, I'm pretty easy to find on Google as well. So, so we are out there, Gina. Oh, I'm definitely out there, too. Um, I keep it simple, just, you know, um, Gina Seymour. So that's the name of my blog, you know, GinaSeymour.com. So if you want to, you know, read more about, you know, what we're doing in the library. Or you can, uh, same same as Heather, you know, Twitter is a great place to, um, you know, contact me. So it's just, again, Gina Seymour. Um, and, um, yeah, um, just Google me too. You, you, you'll find it's, it's not that difficult. So th- uh, thanks again, guys, for talking with me. And I hope everybody goes out there and gets your books and learns from those. And we will see you all again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or review. You can follow the show on Twitter, at CircIdeas, or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Gina apparently has put her dogs out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, they're just impossible to deal with. Well, they they can they can join us for the podcast too. So. <laughs> Gina they, and they her dogs. Do webinars. Yes. Do they do they have any thoughts about my maker spaces or anything? Yeah, they like when I make dog toys. <laughs> I was about to say she does make dog toys. Yeah.